You are listening to Demise of the Podcast with Patrick Attaway, my podcast where I discuss writing specifically today, my own novel, Greenskin. We're going to start chapter three and see where that takes us. Before I get into the book, I want to talk. So yesterday, April 7th, 2023, I officially deleted my Twitter account. I'm not going back. So, the beginning of the end was January 6, 2021, and that period because a lot of people left, and I noticed that everything kind of changed after that, and 2022 was kind of rough, but then when Elon took over, it got worse, and now it was revealed that, for one thing, if you blocked a lot of people and you muted a lot of people, the algorithm did not favor you. So that kind of put me at a disadvantage considering I'd blocked over 7,000 people and also muted several thousand people. But apart from that, uh, it the information that was revealed about the algorithm also said that people who paid for Twitter through Twitter Blue were obviously favored, and that was obvious within the past few months. And it's unfortunate because it led to people who were previously dismissive of that to pay the $8 and join Twitter Blue, despite the fact that they had made fun of it before and mocked those who did. And so... What you end up seeing on Twitter is not an even, I want to say an even scale of response distribution. You know, if you, for instance, go look at James Gunn's Twitter and you look at the comments on his tweets, most of the responses that you'll see are all blue check marks because they get priority. So that is uh, amongst my other issues with the platform beyond Elon, beyond, you know, engagement, just all the toxicity that had been brewing for over a decade, really. I was on this time around for four years and I interacted with a lot of interesting people, but I saw a lot of people that I liked leave and then I never spoke to them again because I didn't know how to find them on other platforms, or I just didn't really know their name. I only knew them from a picture. And that's not really knowing people, is it? And then I found that when I stopped tweeting as much and when I tried to wean myself off of Twitter, there were a lot of people who had no interest in interacting with me on other platforms or no one who was asking, where's Patrick? So all of the... Most of the relationships, I will say 98%, if not 99% of the relationships were all just meaningless. So there's that. But it's a bittersweet thing for me because I had a life before Twitter when I joined it in 2019 for the second time. Or was it 2018? I don't remember. But... I don't math very well. However, I don't want to join another platform. Right now I'm on TikTok as Lurking Vowel, which is the moniker I use to release my music. I just released two singles this week. One of them is actually a pretty cool little rock song called Kirk and Bass. However, TikTok is is a lot different. A lot of my followers are kids which is weird, but, you know, they're interacting with the stuff that I'm posting, which is cool. I had to rearrange my phone's whole setup after I deleted my two Twitter apps. I had one for, you know, keeping up with followers and unfollowers, and that got to be a daily ritual of finding out who had followed me and who had unfollowed me and who I was blocking, you know. Now I have Pokemon Home in one spot and Reddit in another spot, and I don't really use Reddit the way I used to. I have an account for me to promote my books when I do free giveaways, and that's pretty much it. And that's how I've gotten a bulk of my downloads since Twitter's changed. It's through Reddit. 
I have an Instagram, but I don't post on there aside from my stories. This book has been, it's still a new book. I mean, it's weird because whenever I release something where it's, wherever it, whether it's music or literature, it seems like it gets old within a week and people forget it or even I forget it. And it's a real shame because I really tried something different. I offered to give free signed copies out and only two people posted about it on social media. I didn't ask them to, but the thing is, is that when you do something where you buy someone a free book, you sign it, you pay for the postage. I had to pay 10 bucks a pop. So I spent over a hundred dollars when it was all said and done. I also bought them bookmarks and my wife wrapped them. We worked on this together. It took a little time out of our day to do it. And not everyone gave me their address information at the same time. So we had to make multiple trips to the post office and I'll probably never do something like that again. And out of the people that I mailed copies to, I think only one is actually, well, (laughs) two people have read the book. One of them gave me a bad review, which was very kind of him. But beyond that, I have another thing that I want to talk about. That's a little different. As you know, I'm a musician, and you can support me by streaming my music on Spotify or wherever you listen to music. Just search for Lurking Vowel. I record ambient, acoustic vocal, singer-songwriter shit, and experimental rock, some jazz, a lot of different stuff. I've been doing it for, gosh, what? over 15 years I started releasing music in 2007 so uh, about half my life all things considered this is a weird thing to talk about I kind of I don't know I feel like I have a dark cloud over my head today I'm not depressed but I'm just kind of in a mood but I thought that this would make for an interesting topic for the podcast since I love talking about guitars so recently A chain of events led to me modifying my Telecaster. I used to have two Telecasters. I technically still have two Telecasters, and I've owned a lot of Telecasters over the years. And I always end up getting rid of them. I, you know, either sell or trade them. But my wife bought me a Telecaster. It was one of the Squire affinities that I love back in 2019 and they have a thinner body they're built like a brick shit house they all sound great i've never played one that was bad i used to have one of the more sought after telecasters that was made in mexico it was a fender or squire by fender but it had a huge fender logo on it and it just had squire and small print it was during this weird period where, I don't know, in the mid-90s, it doesn't matter. But it wasn't a very good guitar. The cheaper affinities are really one of the best guitars, one of the best bangs for the bucks out there, regardless of how much it cost, actually. But I got that, and I always kind of intended to put a new neck on it so it would be a little fancier, new tuners, and... I didn't want to change the electronics because I love the pickups in it. I've tried changing the saddles on it a couple of times, and it just didn't work as well as the original saddles on it, so I've kept the original bridge. I haven't had to upgrade any of the wiring. The jack is fine. People say you need to replace the jack as soon as you get it. I've not found that to be the case. And I put my thin line telecasters neck on it which has locking tuners on it and my thin line tele is with the body of it is sitting in my closet right now i don't know what i'm going to do with it at this point but i finally get the telecaster that i've always wanted even though a telecaster has never necessarily been my favorite guitar 
I finally get one that I'm like, yes, this is it. And I'm finding that I don't think that I like Telecasters all that much. I've owned so many different ones. And now I have one that has everything that I want and I'm still not really satisfied. And when it comes to getting those tones, I can get that out of my Paul Reed Smith with the pickup switching. And if you listen to a song that I did recently called George Jones in a Tuxedo, it's not a great song. It was just a song that I put together to test my new Walrus Audio ACS-1 that my wife got me for Christmas. And I was playing my Taylor acoustic, but to get like a, a country Telecaster sound, I used the Paul Reed Smith. And you can't tell the difference between it and the Tele. It actually gets kind of a better Tele tone than an actual Tele. I have a Strat that I absolutely love, but at the same time, I'd rather play my Paul Reed Smith or my new Les Paul. I've been playing my Les Paul a lot. And I forgot how much I love those guitars because I haven't had one in over a year. And now that I, I have a, a Gibson Les Paul for the first time in my life, uh, it's it's really awesome. I love that guitar. And I've been using it. It's the guitar that I've used on my last two songs that you can hear on Spotify. Right before I start reading, you know, last week's episode, I got all worked up. And today, you know, I'm in a different mindset. I am a little aggravated, I guess. I'm somewhere between sad and mad. I don't really know why. With, you know, taking down Twitter and divorcing myself from social media as I knew it. And then, I don't know, today was very rainy and stormy and I went out to because I I've been on a diet for the past month and today is the first day that I've really broken down and eaten a lot of sweets uh, not even a lot by anyone's standards I guess but you know yesterday my wife and I went out to dinner and I had tiramisu and I had ice cream <laughs> And listen, I'm not a fat ass or anything. I sometimes jokingly call myself a fat ass, but I'm not a blimp of a guy, you know. I'm still pretty small, but I'm self-conscious about it, and I also really love to eat. So that's kind of an issue. And, you know, I was talking to my dad today, and he's diabetic, but see, the thing about him is that he's never been super huge either. <laughs> he's had a he's had a gut, you know, but he's never been a a big guy. He's always been, you know, kind of like a dad bod. But uh, it's just kind of scary to think about, you know, genetics and everything, and me possibly getting diabetes and. You know, since the pandemic, I've been working from home and just recently in December started working out at home what little I can do because I know that I don't want to push it too hard. And this is all kind of relevant to green skin, as you will see as we progress through the book. So chapter three begins. We didn't meet at a party because neither of us went to parties. Unlike my fantasies of bumping into my soulmate in the college library, Lynn preferred studying in her dorm, and she was a business major. A lot of people think business degrees are more worthwhile than an English one, but the truth is that most degrees are worthless unless they're in a specialized field. No, I met Lynn while waiting for chicken wings at Hairless Samson's Bar and Grill, which was open late for college students. I had to put a reference to Samson in this book, uh, partly because of Delilah and Birch. Despite the intriguing name, Samson's was a hole-in-the-wall dive connected to a gas station. When the pump shut down, locals would park under the awning. Instead of ambient lighting like a jazz club or smoky bar, there were fluorescent lights and a narrow row of tables. I was sitting near the drink cooler when Lynn came in with her friend Carol. 
I don't recall ever seeing Carol after that evening. If we'd met in high school and we were the same age, it's unlikely Lynn and I would even acknowledge each other. She was a cheerleader and in the drama chorus crowd. I wasn't involved in anything extracurricular and certainly didn't think cheerleaders possessed any substance. Most high schoolers don't, including myself. When Lynn first looked at me, I had the advantage of age and a decent two-week beard. See, kids on TikTok and Reddit seem to think the dating world works against certain types or everyone within a certain bracket is trash. Red pillars and incels think women rule the world because the dating world is their buffet. However, they all conveniently ignore that we all like people who are older than us. If I was 18 and a 22-year-old woman looked at me in the eye, I would have melted faster than burnt butter in a cast iron skillet. So, when I smiled at Lynn, she smiled back. I waved with my two forefingers and she waved back. I stood up to get my wings, introduced myself, and left two minutes later with her number. Now, Lynn faces away from me in our bed and stares at her phone. Every time I go to pee or brush my teeth, my reflection spooks me as if an alien is hiding in the bathroom. Rather than showing signs of this condition going away, my skin grows darker. By next week, I expect to look like the Hulk if he ate a plate of laxative, a palate of laxatives. What are we going to do if this gets worse, Lynn asked. You or me, I ask. What? Your depression or my transformation into an X-Men character? Your skin thing. It is getting worse, I say. I'm still the same person, though. What are we going to do, Wayne? I don't have an answer to that question. Then go to a specialist like your dad suggested. I haven't asked her how she feels about my change. And I initially wasn't concerned because I didn't think it affected her. A woman wouldn't leave her husband if he went bald, gained weight, or lost his arm in a zoo accident. I suppose those changes are expected of men as we're stressed and reckless about our appearance. Perhaps I should reach out to Lisa Marie for advice, but she was with Michael when he was white. If this is who I am from now on, I say, are you going to stay? I don't know, Lynn says. You haven't been happy in a while, I say. Seems like you need a change. I'm not unhappy with you, Lynn says. I'm unhappy with everything. Rather than dig deeper, I turn over and shut my eyes. I imagine Lynn feels what I've felt this year. I can't cure her depression and she can't stall my change. Neither of us understands each other's afflictions. We can both tell one another, but that doesn't result in comprehension. Sometimes the more we speak, the more confused we become. What I know is that we're no longer secure in our marriage. When we started dating, Lynn and I found out we were both only children to parents who never divorced. Such a concept is alien to half the population because their parents divorced when they were seven, and their daddy moved in with a woman eight years younger than mommy and stopped picking them up on weekends. Most marriages that result in at least two offspring, so only children of married couples are rare. However, we both understood that such a relationship did not result in security. Marion Pallidus studied theology at Emory and received his master's degree in divinity when I was three. Josie, my mother, still works as a regional salesman for Liver Industrial, a furniture company. She supported us while Dad finished his degree and received his ordination. Lynn's parents are atheists, so she didn't grow up with God. This was the only major difference we spotted in our relationship in the courting phase. Lynn was a rare specimen from my perspective because generational atheism isn't common in the South. Usually kids grow up like me and start thinking about their beliefs in their teens before rejecting what came before them. Lynn didn't even know I still believe in God until a few months ago when we were driving home from the local Mexican restaurant, The Lazy Donkey. As I'm trying to fall asleep and these facts swarm my consciousness, I'm aware that they're meaningless right now. God isn't doing this to me no more than he is punishing Lynn for not believing in him. I never bought the that non-believers go to hell 
Dad has always quietly doubted hell's existence. Why would God create a place to punish people when we're all so fucking stupid? That would mean billions of souls are suffering for eternity for ignorance while a handful of people get to dance in the clouds with golden harps. God doesn't need to punish us when our guilt and self-sabotage serve as punishment. Lynn will eventually feel better. However, I don't know that I'll ever look the same. My face hasn't changed. My body remains in the same physical shape. But the first thing everyone notices about me is this green hue. They'll think I spilt dye all over myself or have some disease that they might catch. When I walk into the office, people don't look up from the floor and often hold their breath. This morning, I am looking forward to going through accounts and taking my mind off what's happening. That's my favorite part of this job. Tedious work is good for my mental health. Working claims isn't as tedious as wrapping silverware, washing dishes, or cleaning stock rooms, but that's the ethic I apply. One claim after the other without mentally pausing. There's a box in my chair, and my photos of Lynn, the framed illustration of Darth Vader she bought me from Etsy, the Garth, the Garfield Funko Pop are inside. My former cubicle looks like the other empty ones on each side. I sense that they're not moving me to another part of the building, but rather out of the building altogether. Miranda comes out of my manager's dark office and holds out her hand. May I have your badge, Wayne? She's wearing blue nitrile gloves and has a plastic bag. When did you make this decision, I ask. It wasn't me, she says. The home office in Atlanta called me this morning. So, they know about this, I gesture to my skin. I'm sorry, Wayne, but could you give me your badge and take your belongings? I drop the badge in the bag and turn to grab the box. If I knew Miranda wasn't going to escort me out, I'd be sure to stop by Kendra's desk for a final four-letter word. Now wouldn't be the best time to bring up the, my family's attorney and gloat about a wrongful termination lawsuit, which is going to happen, because I know corporate already weighed the cost of doing so before they called Miranda. Once we're outside, Miranda looks around to see if anyone is around before straightening her posture and her forced smile dissipates. I am to offer you a severance package that will include the remainder of your due pay for 2019 along with insurance benefits and I have to ask if you're willing to accept this before I send you the offboarding documentation to your email. It's October, I say. That's less than three months salary. If you don't accept, I have to inform corporate. And? Come on, Wayne. You and I know they're screwing you. I still have to offer the severance. You'll still be paid for the remainder of the month, even if you don't accept. Okay. So, off the record, I suppose I might be seeing you again pretty soon. I'm going home now, Miranda. This office building was always a double-edged sword of stress and a safe haven. Now I'm walking out of here for the last time, and I wasn't expecting to lose my job today. The severance that corporate offered me likely came with a contract that stated I couldn't file a lawsuit or work for a competing company within a certain time frame. They were essentially offering me less than $6,000 in the same shitty Cigna insurance coverage until 2020, and I might not be able to find a new job by then. But Lynn and my parents wouldn't let me leave for something out of my control. Plus, I have enough knowledge of fraud within the company and providers' offices that I could report them to CMS. I'd rather not be responsible for layoffs, though. Wayne, Mom answers. Hey, Mom, I say. I'm in the parking lot at work. They just let me go. Are, are you serious? See if you can get Florence Garner on the phone. Oh. Yeah, I'll call her right now. Is there anything I need to tell her? I'm developing green skin. My PCP hasn't found anything life-threatening about it, and my company just fired me, so we need to file a wrongful termination suit. Do you think you can stop by Dr. Till's office for your records in case Flo needs them? I'll head over there now, I say. That concludes Chapter 3.
So I've never been fired from a job this way. I was laid off. This was in October 2021. And the thing is, is that I knew I was going to be laid off because of changes within the company. The fact that there was a massive layoff the year before there was a massive layoff when I started at the company, which is kind of crazy to think about. I don't know. You know, I can't remember what I said during the podcast back then, but I'm sure I talked about it. But I'll, since we're talking about green skin and a similar job, I'll uh, give you the info now. I went on a trip for my birthday that year. My wife and I were out of town, so I was out of the office. And when I came back to work from home, I checked my email and there was an email from my, not my manager, but the uh, manager of the department. And she said that if you're receiving this email, you were not chosen for the new management position because they were all training us for these new RCM roles. And that didn't pan out because they decided to move forward with outsourcing, which we all knew about, but we didn't, we were being led to believe that we would still be working for the company, but in a new role. And you could either apply for the management role or you could work in the call center. Now, my wife worked in the call center for this company back in 2019 and she ended up quitting because management was just terrible. Beyond that, I could see the writing on the wall. Now, I've talked to other people who worked at the company, and they didn't realize when this email went out that we were all going to be laid off. But I, I could read between the lines, and I, that day I started applying for jobs. And within a few days, I applied for like 30 different positions and finally got calls for interviews for two of them. And, you know, the day that I was laid off was the day that I got hired for my new job that I'm working now. Now let's get into chapter four. I had a lot of fun writing this one. Judge Floyd's breathing fills the room as each attorney and myself sit silently. When he clears his throat, it shakes the table. Adjusting his glasses, he looks at my, in my medical documentation and E-arch... EHR Interactive H's, oh my God, EHR Interactive's HR paperwork, paperwork Miranda filed last week. I can read, I promise. I'm a trained professional. Flo knows Floyd from UGA, apparently. Her father was a professor there, and Judge Floyd wouldn't be an attorney at all if not for him. Otherwise, the wheels would turn so slow it would be 2021 before I could get a, a hearing. This is going to be real quick, y'all, Judge Floyd says. I'm going to allow EHR Interactive's team to make this statement. We'll hear from Mr. Pallas's representation, and we can do any rebuttals before ruling. Keep it brief. EHR Interactive's legal team are Jennifer Pattison and Melvin Lonnell, who would look like the number 10 if they stood straight next to one another. I had email exchanges with Jennifer when there was concern over my former urological sot night making their monthly payments for two months. She sounds more masculine than Melvin, who might pass for Oliver Hardy if you gave him a top hat. Our uh, HR rep at the West Georgia branch contacted us regarding an employee with a potential health hazard, Jennifer says. She reported that... Um, Several employees were uncomfortable working in the same building as Mr. Pallidus, and it was his manager that stated she would no longer work for our company if he was kept on board. We were unable to confirm the condition that Mr. Pallidus is suffering from and could not determine if it was contagious, but we decided it wasn't worth the hazard in office. We offered Mr. Pallidus a severance package that covered his pay for the remainder of 2019, including his health benefits, which he declined. Georgia is an at-will employment state, and EHR Interactive was in the right to sever Mr. Pallidus' employee employment with the company. Did I do a good job with legalese here? I don't know. This might be a terrible representation of what would happen in a real situation, legally speaking. But you have to remember, 
I've never been in this, this position, so I can only, you know, write based on what people have told me and what I've seen on TV and what I've read in books, et cetera. And I, I didn't feel like doing a shit ton of research, like sitting in an actual courtroom to do, you know, for this shit. I've watched trials. I've heard, I've got lawyers in my fucking family for God's sakes. So if this seems unrealistic to you, maybe you shouldn't be reading fiction. Did your HR representative speak to Mr. Paldus's colleagues or manager regarding his condition? Judge Floyd asked. She merely reported back to them what he told her that his condition was not terminal. So your HR representative told employees about his condition without his consent. That was another judgment call on our part, Melvin says. Mr. Paladis' condition came on suddenly according to her report. I suppose I should point out the obvious, Judge Floyd says. If Mr. Paladis' illness was contagious, he might have caught it from your West Georgia campus. Have any other employees shown symptoms of this illness or been discharged as a result? No, Jennifer says. Miss Garner. Florence Garner married Jason Garner 20 years ago and dad officiated their wedding in our church. Jason is a deacon and Florence sings in our choir, so any legal assistance the church receives is pro bono. Unfortunately, my case is not free. According to my client, Mr. Pallidus, Floyd sa- Flo says, good lord, he was a well-respected employee that worked for a multi-million dollar medical group in Virginia. Despite that he was able to handle a site he states made a lot of money for EHR Interactive, he received a $1 raise in late 2018 and has yet to receive any bonus or incentive for his services. Sounds like a very loyal employee to work to make so much money when he has so little, no? He could, have sought un- he could have sought employment elsewhere with his qualifications, yet he remained with this company. I imagine with his sudden departure, this medical group is asking very serious questions regarding turnover and why EHR Interactive would let their best claims analyst go. This decision to release Mr. Pallidus could potentially cost a lot more than the 6000 or so dollars they would have had to have paid him in severance. Your Honor... It appears this was a brash decision on their part and reactionary rather than precautionary. Mr. Pallidus was examined by a physician who determined he was healthy aside from his skin changing color. He even offered his medical records to their HR department for review, though they never formally accepted. Being let go from his position not only puts him at a disadvantage financially, but he also cannot find work elsewhere given his physical appearance and status as a terminated employee. His wife is currently unemployed, so he has to rely on borrowing money from his parents in the event he cannot find work in the coming weeks. EHR Interactive are punishing Mr. Pallidus for something out of his control, and he is suffering financially, physically, and mentally. Judge Floyd looks at me with an expression of pity and disgust, as if I'm bleeding fr- a bleeding frog staining a creek bed. When he turns to Jennifer and Melvin... He pulls a peppermint from his coat pocket and pops the candy into his mouth. Melvin moves back in his seat. Do you have a rebuttal to this statement, Judge Floyd says. It was never our intention, Melvin starts. That sounds like an apology, Judge Floyd spits. I asked if you have a rebuttal. No, Jennifer says. Miss Garner, what damages do you seek? Considering my client's inability to ever work again if his condition if his condition continues, Floyd says, two million. That's sickening, Melvin says. You have the option to settle for an agreed upon amount, Judge Floyd says. We can offer fifteen thousand, Jennifer says. That is roughly six months' pay. So Mr. Pallidus is supposed to continue living like an undervalued employee for half a year and end up on the street? Flo asks. Miss Gone is right, Judge Floyd says. Frankly, I think two million sounds too low. Five hundred thousand, Melvin slaps the table. 
This is not an auction house, Judge Floyd says. Now, if you're unwilling to be unre- to be realistic and waste more of my time, I'm going to cease these proceedings. We'd have to get corporate approval for more than what we originally offered, Jennifer says. Why is your corporate officer not here then? Judge Floyd asks. All right, E-H- EHR Interactive has the opportunity to appeal this decision, but I'm ruling in favor of the plaintiff. I hereby order EHR Interactive to pay $3,500,000 in damages. This amount is taxable by the federal government, and Mr. Paladis' representation will likely be taking a cut in legal fees. Judge Floyd signs a document, which he hands to the court reporter, who stands while he leaves to his office down the hall. Jennifer and Melvin don't make eye contact with us before exiting. Flo puts her hand on my shoulder and gives me a squeeze. Congratulations, Wayne, she says. I have never seen someone become a millionaire so quickly before. Maybe it can fund the treatment for this. I hold up my green arm. Let me tell you, Flo says. If God willed it, you better not try to reverse it. As long as you're healthy, I say, buy you a house away from everyone and be whatever you want to be. The ride back home has me contemplating that I could die in a car wreck and never see a penny from EHR Interactive, and death would be preferable than going home looking the way I do. I could have won a hundred billion dollars, but I'm still an abomination. If the media takes interest in this case ruling, a lot more than a few people around town will hear about the green guy. I'm lucky my landlord hasn't found out yet. Having that much money is dangerous for my marriage. Some people might think money solves a lot of problems, but Lynn might decide it's time to divorce me so she can take half of what I made and move to Oregon or someplace where someone else can make her happy. I might as well pack my things and move into my parents' basement today. Lynn hasn't even woken up yet. I sit on her side of the bed and put my hand on her butt since she responds more positively, gently waking instead of saying her name. Reaching for the lamp on the bedside table, she keeps her eyes closed and exhales as if she had held her breath the whole time I was gone. Well, she asks, the judge ruled in my favor, I say. That's good. How much are you going to get? We should probably talk about that when you're more alert. Sitting up, Lynn brushes her hair back and presses against her temples. Those eyes resemble what a monster under the bed must look like to paranoid paranoid children. Do I need to keep looking for a job? Lynn asks. Depends on whether or not you want to work, I say. You know the answer to that. Let's say it's enough money that we wouldn't have to work ever again, I say. What are you going to do? What do you mean? Are you going to leave me? Wayne, I know it's unfair of me to ask, but I want an answer. I think I need time to myself. All right, I say. I think we got married really early, and I didn't really get to live life the way I was supposed to. I don't think I can do that if I go out in public with you. So, do you want a trial separation, I ask? No, I should probably find my own place and see where I'm I'm at. Well, it sounds like you need a job then. It's kind of difficult to get into specifics regarding Lynn. But, you know, people are going to have different takes on the character, obviously. I don't think Lynn is necessarily in the wrong 100%. Some of the things she says later in the book and the way that she exits her relationship is pretty cold. But you have to realize what she's saying is her truth. And she was probably going to end up leaving Wayne regardless of his skin situation eventually. Because... Some relationships you just grow out of. It's not necessarily a, a case where someone's hurting you in some way. You just grow apart. And 
you know, Lynn had other things she wanted to do in life. And like many of us who enter adulthood, it doesn't turn out to be the way we wanted it to be or the way we thought it would be. And with Wayne, we see this pretty clearly. I mean, a big part of what makes this book is the fact that he's, he's starting to have this quarter life crisis. Everything in his life is going wrong and it's about to change and it might change for the better. Sure. But he's losing something that is a huge part of who he is, not just his wife, his job, the life that he knew and he can never go back to it. I'll, I'll use an analogy here. This relationship is like a building that's torn down. You used to spend a lot of time in this building. You made memories in this building. And you even knew that it was going to go away. But now that it's gone forever, you can delete your Facebook, you can delete your Twitter, you can delete any social media, you can stop going to a place, but you can always go back. That's always an option. And that option gives you some sort of comfort. Like, I could always change my mind. But when it comes to something being destroyed, you can never go back. When I was talking to my dad today, he was talking about how smart he thinks I am. And we were talking about my career options since I'm likely not going to teach. And that's something that's on my mind lately. Because I've got a career already outside of teaching, but... I'm going to have to advance in it eventually. And the thing is, is that nothing has worked out that I, the way I thought it would. The only real positive constants in my life are my wife and my mother and the few friends that I have. And whenever I talk to my dad, I kind of like a part of me kind of reverts to childhood where when I speak to him it's like I I can't really make anything I say sound smart it's, it's like I'm a child trying to explain things I don't get that with my mother I don't get that with my wife I don't get that with my friends but that's kind of the way I feel lately I feel like I have once again overestimated how intelligent I am. And when I left college after graduating in 2015, I thought I was the smartest guy in the world. And I was quickly disproven by the working world. I was tremendously humbled. And when I went to grad school, I was around all these people who had went straight from undergrad to grad school. And they'd never had that humbling they hadn't had the realization that what we do is just not that important to the world. And what we know is very limited in the scope of things. Most people don't give a shit how many books you've read. It's just the God's honest truth. What makes it important is how important it is to you, but it's important to you alone. And I think one of the things that may have offended someone about my book is how dismissive it is of that way of life. You know, I make anti-English major rhetoric in this. I have uh, a Bernie Sanders joke in here. There's a lot in this book that probably makes some readers uncomfortable because they can't tell which side of the fence I'm on. You know, we want to categorize everyone as either Republican or Democrat, or you're either with us or against us. I'm not a Joe Rogan fan. I've probably talked shit about him before on here, but, you know, occasionally he'll say something interesting that pops up in my TikTok, or I'll listen to his show because he's got someone like Louis C.K. on, and I want to listen to Louis C.K., but uh, there's this clip that's been going around TikTok of him talking to this woman who's saying that 
you know, she loved Hillary Clinton, and he's like, nobody fucking loved Hillary Clinton, which is fucking true. And then, you know, she brings up Elizabeth Warren. He says, Elizabeth Warren's a con artist, which is how I feel. But then he talks about Bernie Sanders. And, you know, there's a lot about Bernie Sanders that's easy to like. And you'll see him, you know, like just recently, him being very hard on people. But most people, maybe you don't want to believe this, most people see Bernie Sanders as essentially a meme. I mean, I don't really put much stock in what he allegedly stands up for. I think a lot of it is a pose. And maybe he's genuine in some ways, but at the end of the day, he's just another politician. I've got a picture of Biden on my wall and I look at it when I, you know, want to talk for a while or just want to be reminded that this is a guy that I wanted to run in 2016. And this is a guy that I found hilarious and I didn't really have much faith in him back then, but I wanted him to run because I thought it would be more tolerable than having Trump in office. And I thought he would have been a better candidate than Hillary. And I was right. And he was the guy to take out Trump. He's always been a guy who's kind of sat in the middle in terms of liberal and conservative. Many people consider him to be fairly conservative, but throughout his presidency, he's done things that have been radically left And what I love about him is that he's so divisive. There are people on the left who hate him. There are tons of people on the right who hate him, obviously. But he served as the vice president to the best president of my generation. Of course, Obama was incredibly flawed, but he was the best in my generation. But Biden is at a late point in his life, and he does not give a shit anymore. He will say what is on his mind for the most part and he'll make fun of people and the way that people make fun of him it it annoys me the same way that people made fun of Trump annoyed me because they're trying to point out something that they think makes him unqualified for the office or they say something like oh he's an ugly old man it's the same shit every presidential cycle and it's annoying There are enough negative qualities of Donald Trump that you don't need to make fun of his appearance. It's fucking childish. And just because he's childish doesn't mean you need to stoop to his level. And the same with with Biden. The way that people make fun of his stuttering, he's... He went on The View back in 2007, I think, and he talked about stuttering as a child and how he would look in the mirror and read poetry and force himself to work on his stutter. He's had a stutter his whole fucking life. And now he's an old man. Of course he's going to have a fucking stutter now. And, you know, George W. Bush was, what, in his f- late 40s, his, his 50s when he was in office? He said weird shit all the time. We're all memeing Trump saying, Obama. So I feel that most of the criticism of Biden is either completely made up bullshit like he controls the gas prices or he's destroying America, which Jesus Christ, the last president tried his best to do that. I'm not going to talk about it anymore. I don't want to talk about it anymore. I'm going to read chapter five for God's sakes. I wear a jacket, gloves, a peanuts, baseball hat, and sunglasses so nobody immediately freaks out when I step into the Douglas County Finance and Investment Center, which is next to the original courthouse downtown. By the way, this building does not exist. (laughs) But the original courthouse downtown is a museum, and it's pretty cool. Uh, And the peanuts baseball hat is uh, a reference that I thought my wife would like. With a name like this, I was expecting at least a two-story building. Instead, there's a receptionist desk and a single hallway that leads to a break room with offices on each side. Genevieve Arbor's office is the last door on the left, and she's currently eating gummy bears off a napkin while playing online chess on her phone. 
When I shut the door behind me, she looks up to see a man who bears a resemblance to the Unabomber in every police sketch ever before I take off my hat and glasses to reveal myself. Is your name Wayne? She drops a bear on her desk. Yes, ma'am, I say. I made my appointment under the name Edgar Poe, though. I've read more than one book in my life, sir, she says, and I also read the news. Then you know I recently came into some money, I sit down. Her hair reminds me of the way women used to wear blazers with big shoulder pads and knee-length skirts and bank commercials. There was this one with a cheesy sharing the hometown spirit jingle, that's a real thing, which I associate with the early 90s more than Nirvana. Genevieve is too young to remember such trivialities because she barely looks 20. I know I mispronounced trivialities. It's trivialities or some shit, but I'll pronounce things the way that I want to. I have a master's degree in English. I can do what the fuck I want. I, that, someone is going to listen to that and not realize that I'm joking because I don't know. People have a hard time deciphering tone. It's like when... I don't know, Game Grumps years ago, they would like playfully act like they were mad at each other and people were like, oh, Dan and John are upset at each or Aaron and John are upset at each other, which is bullshit. Do you mind if I ask your age? I say, I'm 23, she says. Do I seem older or younger? That's a trap. Would you believe me if I said I just turned 28? When's your birthday? November 2nd. You look like you could be 28 or 48, she says. Wow, I didn't realize anyone could make me feel worse. I wink to let her know I'm kidding, but Genevieve almost swallows her upper lip as she throws away the gummy bears and closes Microsoft Edge on her desktop. So, I'm here for two reasons, I say. I need a house, and then we need to look at a safe investment for some of my money. Typically, people go to a bank or realtor when they want to buy a house. Most people aren't millionaires. Well, I do have access to Google and Trulia, I suppose. I can reimburse you for the extra effort, I say. I need a mouthpiece for as many people as possible. You may not have noticed, but my skin makes me look like I'm cosplaying as the Jolly Green Giant. Okay, so what are you looking to spend? The most important aspect is land. I don't want to farm, but I need enough coverage so that people can't see me if they drive by or look out their window. However, I also need a cable connection for internet so it can't be in the boonies. That doesn't sound practical at all, Wayne. She turns her screen to face me as she pulls up Google Maps and types in an address. It's a neighborhood that I'm actually familiar with only five minutes from my apartment. Len and I would drive through there during Christmas to look at lights. There was one house that used to have a weird colored bulb in one room, and I assumed it was for uh, either a goth kid or orgies. That's a real thing, by the way. There is a neighborhood near my neighborhood. I don't live in an apartment, but uh, my wife, during Christmas time, we will drive through to look at lights. And there was, it's now a vacant home. But there was one home, and it was kind of by itself. There were a lot of empty lots over there, and it had a purple bulb in the room. And I knew either it's a teenager's room or it's used for sex. Maybe both. I know this property because it's an investment safe haven, she says. Every empty plot is owned by someone who has no intention of living there. It's not too costly either. See, this one corner over here, there's enough room to put up a house here with a sturdy fence to keep anyone out, and I don't want to build, I say. I don't have time. My wife and I are separating. Well, even buying can take time, I'm aware. I don't want to live over there anyway. Let's circle back on that, Genevieve says. You wanted to talk investments? I'm aware that I have over $2 million, I say. But I need to make sure the money doesn't run out. This is supposed to last both my wife and I our entire lives. You're married? Separated, I say. My wife is staying in our apartment until the lease is up in April 2020. Genevieve scratches her chin while sizing up the information I just unloaded on her. 
I'm well aware that my marriage is likely ending. The last real conversation I had with Lynn ended with her saying she didn't want to have sex with a man whose penis is green. We haven't spoken since. However, I believe that if we got married, I owe my wife something for her future. I recommend fidelity, she says. We can look at individual stocks, but fidelity is going to be secure enough with the Roth IRA so that you pay taxes up from and none of your accruals or withdrawals are uh, subject to taxation. How much do you recommend, I ask? I think it's smarter to keep your money fluid rather than in one place. Put some away in savings, a Roth, and a stock like Apple or Microsoft. If I give you a million dollars, I say, can you make that judgment for me? You'll have to sign off on everything, and I think it's wise if I explain my decisions before I pull the trigger on anything. Fine, I say. By the way, there's a place in Noonan I want you to look at for me. 1199 Bitterman Court. I wanted to bounce ideas off her before giving her a definitive answer. There's a chance I won't get the property, of course. However, there's a small church in Noonan where my distant ancestors are buried, and I notice the incomplete development nearby. A lot of times a contractor or investor will try developing a subdivision, and it fails before anything gets off the ground. The house popped up around the last time I drove by in 2019, and the remainder of the street is empty plots with scattered pine trees and for sale signs. Oh, that's kind of secluded, Genevieve says. Once all these lots are full, you're going to have a lot of neighbors. Try to get all the plots, I say. It shouldn't cost more than 500000 That's insane. I mean, I don't want to dissuade you from buying land because land is always a smart investment, but this was zoned for a neighborhood. 500000 is low-balling it. Offer them 100 for the house and the land and another 100 for the remaining properties then. Let me know what the developer says. I imagine if they can't get anything sold or built by now, they're bleeding. I don't see it happening, Wayne. Humor me. Okay, here's the thing. Yes, this is unrealistic. I am well aware of this as the author. However, what you need to keep in mind is he's also messing with her. Okay? He doesn't actually think, oh, this deal is going to go through. I mean, his initial offer to her is 500000 and he drops it to 200000 and he's fucking with her. I walked to the courtyard in the back where city employees used to take smoke breaks. It's rare I get to sit in the sun anymore, and today it's overcast. No one is around to gawk at me, though. Mom has to do my grocery shopping now that Lynn checked out of my life. Normally when people break up, they at least have hope that they'll either reconcile or find someone new. I can't imagine anyone wanting me now unless they have a weird fetish. By the way, that comes in a play letter. Genevieve pokes her head outside before joining me on the bench. I wonder if she has good news or bad news. The developer filed for bankruptcy, she says. Wells Fargo owns all that property now, even the house. Were you able to talk to anyone about an offer? I have to get in touch with the Noonan branch, but I looked at the public records for that property and you weren't low-balling at all. Sometimes I'm smart. Seems to me you're smart a lot of the time if you're not blowing all your money on dumb things. It's wise to invest, Wayne. A lot of this book is poking fun at literary fiction tropes and conventions. And the first part of this book is written with kind of a tongue-in-cheek blandness to it. And, for instance, the courtroom scene, it's a very condensed scene. And it's mildly humorous, but also there's a lot of long legal talk in it. Nothing, you know, too technical. But what ends up happening in this book is we break away from that pretty soon. I know we've gotten five chapters in and what's going to end up happening is things are going to get more lighthearted and everything. Uh, It's always darkest before the dawn people. But once we get to my favorite part and you'll know what part I'm talking about, uh, things 
rapidly change. And some of the chapters are like the courtroom scene or like little vignettes or short stories unto themselves. That's another literary trope. The other day, Zev Good made a, a joke tweet about looking at the, the top literary books on Amazon. What you end up seeing is a lot of stuff that isn't literary. And it's interesting to me because we all kind of have a different definition of what literary fiction is. And it seems like a critique of something like Greenskin would be that it's not literary at all that it might be contemporary fiction or it might just be a piece of shit but for one thing literary fiction is heavy on character studies and greenskin is kind of like a long character study there also there's there's a main plot there are subplots uh, there's an attention to relationships not just romantic it's both a serious book and also a very satirical book. A lot of it is, is tongue in cheek and there is a lot of humor in it that is more my taste. And as I've, you know, talked about on here and also on my Instagram stories, you know, there's a reason why I only have three friends and what's evident in the substacks that I wrote while I was writing Greenskin and to help promote green skin pokes fun at the people who try to classify literary fiction as literary fiction and exclude others from the genre because they're a bunch of fucking prudish snobs at the end of the day a good book is a good book and either you like or you dislike something and you know last night i was thinking about the story i think his name is richard ford he's a writer I've never read anything he's written, but he spat on Colson Whitehead, who is another overrated author, after Colson Whitehead gave his book a bad review. And a lot of people made a fuss about it. Some people said that Richard Ford was doing it as some racially motivated thing. Um, but at the end of the day, what you need to realize is that music writing any kind of art form that is a part of someone that is like their child they have the same relationship with that as they would a family member and when you critique that you're critiquing a part of them and you you can't say it's not personal it is personal that's something that you know for instance the the famous feud between Gore Vidal and Henry Mailer. Is that his name? The fact that they got on a fight over fiction is hilarious to me. Criticism definitely has its place. I'm not against criticism, but when you attack someone personally or you come after them because of something you didn't like in their book, that is not only childish, it also shows a severe insecurity in the person who's writing their critique. Because if there was something legitimately wrong with the book, then you should be able to spell it out without attacking the person who wrote it personally. But what you need to realize is that an attack on the book is at times a personal attack on the author. There's so much pretension in, in literature and English majors. It's all a lot of bullshit though, because nothing that we do is important in the grand scheme of things. If literature was actually important, then everyone would be a reader. It's important to me. It may be important to you, but what you need to realize is that the times are changing. People are watching better TV. They're watching better movies. They're listening to podcasts like this one. And I'm thinking about doing another series like with Nero where I write for the podcast. In that sense, writing is important to people, but they just don't realize it. But much like that New York Times article, The Death of the English Major, our time is coming to an end, my friends.
So, you know, gear up for idiocracy if you think that's where we're headed. This has been Patrick Attaway with Demise of the Podcast. Happy reading, happy writing. Go get a life, you sorry son of a bitch. Mm-hmm.